Ben, I don't think we're in the mall anymore, dude. I don't know where we are, but I don't think we're supposed to be here. Look, we'll just we'll just go a little bit further, and then we can turn around. I, I don't know if this is some kind of vacant office space or maybe something for a lease, but oh god, it smells in here. Turn around. Where are we going to turn around to? We've been walking down this hallway for like 20 minutes now. We haven't seen a single piece of furniture. There's no doors, no windows, there's no potted plants, and I haven't seen a single person. Who's this guy that we're supposed to be meeting anyway? You know how we were, we were talking about urban legends, right? And yeah. How there haven't been any good ones since the 70s. Well, Damn right. Well, I was, I, I was chatting with this guy, and he said that he knew of a really good one, and he had all this information on it, and he said to meet us here. Okay, you were talking to this guy, like where, on the internet? There's there's nobody here. We're lost. What kind of urban legend was this supposed to be anyway? Why did we have to be in this weird-ass hallway from a mall somewhere? It looks like wherever we are, we have a ways to go, and I, don't, I can't even remember how long ago it's been since we saw the food court. We'll, we'll head back while we got to pass some time anyway. I'm just going to ask you... Have you ever heard of something called a liminal space? Yes. Maybe? Yes. Welcome to I Thought the Lore, the podcast where we examine a paranormal tale and try to figure out why people still talk about it today, where we don't care about true or false. We're only interested in how or why some stories linger in the backs of our minds while others disappear completely. In the end, we'll try to figure out if the lore won or if the lore lost. We're your hosts, Ben McDewey and Rico Sweets from the Mean Streets. We're here to bring that magical tale to your teeny tiny tingly ears. So you know how you and I, we spend a lot of time talking about all these different urban legends and how they seem to have peaked in the 70s and then fallen off a cliff where... You know, 70s was a good time, man. There was a lot going on in the 70s. Clearly, because that's where you get all these, you know, all these famous stories like you got like Bloody Mary. You got that guy with the hook for a hand. <laughs> you got razor blades in the Halloween candy. And maybe that... Lady that the Spanish lady that cries a lot, La Llorona. That's the one. Yeah, I'm not I, gonna say it. I swiped right on her. <laughs> My god. Well, anyway, I wanted to try and take a look to see if there was something a little more current, like what what qualifies as urban legend today, and you know, with the whole internet age. So, yeah, like I was saying, the whole liminal space thing, right. I've heard a few descriptions or definitions, and while I've heard some of them described specifically as it has to be a hallway or a place of transition, right, where you get from one place to another, maybe a doorway, maybe a hallway, maybe like not something where you'd stay in one place. Okay. What I prefer is locations that are usually known to be very busy, but have an unnatural kind of emptiness or abandonment unnaturally empty off the top of my head if i was to list off a few of these examples you or in a similar way anybody that heard these would kind of get that very first hint at something that makes you feel say uneasy right like i'd be willing to bet money that most people would agree their first experience like mine was going to their elementary school's parent teacher interview night you're there with your parents it's like 7 30 8 o'clock pitch black outside there was just something about being in your school at night with only kind of most of the lights on and you get those, you know, the dimly lit hallways that just don't look right. Okay. And I know exactly what you're talking about because when I was in the fourth grade, I got detention 
almost every day. Not because I was a bad kid, but just because I wouldn't shut up. And the teacher was like, you got to stay after school. School gets out. Everybody else goes home. First time I had detention, didn't know how long it was going to be. Teacher never said anything. I thought, oh my God, do I have to sleep here? What's going to happen? And it was only like 20 minutes. Okay. It was a relief when I was allowed to go. But even that, after 20 minutes, there's nobody there that you see. There's no kids running up and down the hall. The only noises that you hear are in the classrooms with the teachers cleaning up and you just hear this distant echo from down the hall and everything is weirdly quiet, weirdly empty. I know exactly what you're talking about with that. So another example might be anytime you've been traveling and you go to an airport, you know, you're walking through the, the different wings and you go by these empty lounges or processing areas and these vacant kiosks where it's all this floor space and you can see sort of desks and seating and tables that were, I'm sure was used for some sort of overflow processing at some point. All this dimly lit area that's just disused and you're walking past it going somewhere else. You kind of, you know, your mind kind of wanders to say, oh, you know, what was that for? Or what for? Or who would have been sitting there? Or why would you have to talk to someone sitting there? Yeah. If you've ever been in a department store, which seems to be happening all the time now, you have a department store going out of business. They have those final days of their 80% off, everything clearance, sale, must go. You're walking through departments of, of, of a store that you've been going to since you were a kid, but suddenly all the shelves are missing, all the merchandise is missing. You've got these vast vacant areas of, of carpet with like foot traffic kind of worn into them. Mm. It's such a wide open space with nothing in it. In your mind, you feel like there should be things there. Well, yeah. In in your mind, you've seen it in the past and now there's something wrong. Exactly. In that case, you can tell what's wrong, like you know. Mm -hmm. But if you hadn't been there for a long time or if the shelves weren't quite as empty and, and not as many people were there, most of the sales were at the front of the store, you wandered into the back, you know what's supposed to be there and it's not. And it kind of gives that doubling in your mind of what it is versus what it should be. And that gives you kind of that eerie, weird feeling like this is not right and maybe I'm not supposed to be here. It's funny you mentioned that because the, the next example I thought of was, you know, anytime you've been to the late show at a movie, yeah. If the movie theater is attached again to a mall, when the movie lets out, the mall's been closed for hours. Yeah. So you're exiting the cinema, and as you're going out towards your car, you're looking to your left and to your right. Everything is dark. The lights, minimal lighting. Everything's locked up, empty, abandoned. There's nobody there. And again, you get that sense of like kind of foreboding like you're not supposed to be there yeah and you know it's just the mall like you've been there a thousand times there's no necessarily any kind of a threat but you just kind of have this weird feeling like gotta get to the exit as fast as i can like gotta get to my car again it's that weird feeling of of something that's both familiar and unfamiliar at the same time yeah like wow. an it's like an empty food court that has the uh that grating pulled down where you would order and now i'm thinking about that manchu walk that we passed and i probably should have got something to eat while we were here think about any time you've ever been at any kind of a convention or a meeting or any any of those big conference centers at hotels uh you know you catch sight of say maybe a, maybe the displays didn't take up as much space as they thought so you look kind of beyond where all the people are and you just see hundreds of square feet of empty carpet fluorescent lighting 
maybe the lighting's not even on, so yeah. you've got like you've got it in half shadow. And all you see is maybe a tiny exit sign at the far end of an empty space. Yeah. Yeah. These are all sort of like places that give us this kind of subtle uneasiness that for the longest time we never really were able to put our finger on what made us feel creeped out by them. At the same time, we've all kind of shared this very same Ghibli's. Ooh, Ghibli, Ghibli, Ghibli. Question becomes, well, how do these places, how do you build an urban legend out of these? Okay. According to Wikipedia, an urban legend is a subgenre of horror comprising claims or stories circulated as true, especially as having happened to a friend of a friend or a family member, often with horrifying, humorous, or cautionary elements. These legends can be entertaining, but often concern mysterious peril or troubling events such as disappearances and strange objects or entities. Urban legends may confirm moral standards, reflect prejudices, or be a way to make sense of societal anxieties. Okay, and I get that. I understand that. I know what you're talking about, but you still haven't connected the dots here on how talking to some dude online led us here, wherever the hell here is. The guy I was chatted to, he said he couldn't say much about what it is, but he said he could show me if we met him behind the food court at this weird hick little mall, which I figured, you know what? Winnebago's parked outside. How much trouble can we be in? Dude, don't talk too much about the Winnebago. We told the guy we were taking it for a test drive two days ago and never came back. All right? That, okay. No, good point. Sorry. Okay. Also, just got to mention, when somebody says they'll meet you behind a hick mall, it's usually how you get herpes. What? Uh, just forget it. Wherever we are, it actually has, a, I'm looking around, it has more than a passing resemblance to something that began harmlessly enough back in May of 2019. And in, oddly enough, one of the most unsettling spaces of all, 4chan. <laughs> we have this thread, right? I think it's I think it's the slash X slash, I think it's called. And it's Is that the, porn? Eat, well, I mean, it's 4chan, right? Oh, okay. Technically, it's supposed to be all about things related to the paranormal. Okay. And somebody at one point decided, hey, everyone post what you think an image of an unsettling place would be. Of course, everyone starts throwing up pictures of abandoned McDonald's playlands and hotel lobbies and places like this. And these were all meant to be people one-upping each other to say, oh, you know, you think that's creepy? Okay, well, here, here's this. What happened was you had somebody post an image of what appears to be a commercial office space completely devoid of any windows, furniture, people. The image was taken with a, if I could be so bold as to call it a Dutch angle. It was taken in a way that was meant to really drive home this idea of being kind of just unsettling and kind of off. The problem is somebody else goes in, puts a description under that person's picture, and it says, and I quote, if you're not careful and you no clip out of reality in the wrong areas, you'll end up in the back rooms where it's nothing but the stink of old moist carpet, the madness of mono yellow, the endless background noise of fluorescent lights at maximum humbuzz, and approximately 600 million square miles of randomly segmented empty rooms to be trapped in. God save you if you hear something wandering around nearby because it sure as hell heard you. That is a great description. When you were talking about modern urban legends in the internet age, I think that works great, that description, because no clipping. Mm -hmm. For anybody of a certain vintage who doesn't know what no clipping is, refers to a video game where you can pass through a section that isn't meant to be passed through. If you're going down a hall, there's a wall, 
you're not supposed to be able to go through that wall in the video game, but sometimes you can pass through it. You can get behind the structure uh, that you're supposed to be in in the video game. You can look down on it, but then you can also find these unused assets and you can move around outside of the parameters of the video game, as it were, and you can see these unused things. So I think the idea of no clipping out of reality works on that level. But more recently, I think it also works on another level because there's that theory about what if the universe is a simulation and how would we know? So the idea of no clipping also works within that context of our reality being somebody else's simulation. Being like an artificial construction. Basically us existing here right now, we are running, we are being run on a simulation as simulated individuals. And we decided to try to start a podcast because apparently as simulations, we're not the brightest, but I like those. I like those two things. I think they work really well with a modern setting for an urban legend. I think that's really cool. It kind of, there's kind of a synchronicity there. Is synchronicity the right word or? In terms of a certain type of terminology being used to describe something that is popular at a certain point of time. Yeah. So there's kind of a synchronicity between the video game idea of no clipping, but then the the idea recently over the last, I don't know, year or so that maybe we are, our entire universe is just a simulation running on a hard drive somewhere in a larger universe that I don't know. Is that God? Oh my God. Did I figure out who God is? He's just some science dude. Uh, he's a programmer. That sucks. He's probably masturbating right now. That's why the porn industry exists because he built it himself. Uh, strip clubs are just so he could get his teeny tiny tingly dinky out. Things just got sad. They did. They got very sad, very quick. Could he at least give me God mode? Let me fly. I would like to go to Mars and not freeze in the vacuum of space. I just want to take a moment to point out the problematic but very necessary use of the term no clipping. And I can feel my hair graying as I attempt to explain this for context. Con- as I attempt, as I attempt, as I try to talk about this with words. You have good words. My limited experience with video games tells me that no clipping is a cheat or exploit that gamers can use intentionally or accidentally to pass through walls and other barriers in the game world to, and I quote, take the camera anywhere they want and find secrets and discoveries in some of their favorite games. To use that as a technical term here though, kind of takes 90% of the credibility out of this story if we were concerned about how true it is. And also just because it's a way that kids talk nowadays, and I'm just wondering if it's 3 p.m. yet because I'm hungry and I have a coupon. Mm, yum, yum, yum. Yeah, so for me, I'm looking at the term no clipping, the way it's being used so casually here. I mean, like you said, for synchronicity, and I'm not sure what I'm doing now with comparing, with blending the two things together. The use of the term no clipping on the one hand adds credibility because if you're talking about a modern day urban legend, you have to acknowledge the way people today talk because you're communicating to your audience because you know who your audience is Mm -hmm. and it's going to be people who are familiar with the term Mm -hmm. because they're on 4chan and at the same time i'm also stuck in the 70s where if i hear someone talking about no clipping and using the term so casually to me because that indicates them being of a certain age i automatically 
want to discount what they're saying as not being serious. Yeah, I get that. I get your side of it in the terms of in in terms of it as credibility because obviously being a modern urban legend if that's what this is, you have to allow for modern people to talk about it using the words they're going to use, yeah. right? In the context that they know and the way they look at things every day. That's me just being old and grumpy. Yay. Old and grumpy is great. <laughs> I do get your side of it that kids today aren't going to talk like people from the 70s. Yep. They're going to use terms that people, kids today would understand. Yeah. Computer nerds that program or nerds and build programs to masturbate to. So now what we have is what every good urban legend needs. A scenario or a location with a anonymous source giving us a warning about what could happen if you find yourself lost there. And, like any good, good urban legend, it needs to spread, evolve, and grow. All we're doing here is swapping out playground whispers and your brother's best friends, older sisters, ex-boyfriends, stepmoms, hairdressers, nephews, pen pal for social media. Because if there is one thing social media loves, it's the open invitation to try and get famous riding the coattails of someone else's idea. And by 2022, the Backroom subreddit had 157,000 users. Damn. Yeah, like you said... Somebody riding off of the coattails of others, go on social media, and I mean, I limit myself to Instagram, but I will scroll through on uh, the search page and see the same picture posted by eight or ten different accounts. Sometimes they've changed the text that's on it. They've reposted without uh, acknowledging the original poster and basically just putting it on their timeline for people to see, not necessarily stating this is mine, I take credit for it, but also not saying this is somebody else's, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. Suddenly, you have people creating subreddits and fiction dedicated to expanding the backroom's lore. You have multiple levels with the original office space aesthetic being just one of many, including a more industrial level. Uh, in this case, I sort of picture those various iterations to see of Freddy Krueger's lair with all the, you know, steam pipes and the platforms and the catwalks and the ladders. And much like Fred, each level had its own big bad that prowled the endless labyrinthine corridors. In your opinion, when you were doing research on this, did that add to it or did it kind of take away from it because now somebody posted something that was unsettling you get an idea in your mind even from that description mm -hmm. but now other people have tried to make that idea concrete and it kind of takes away from your imagination and now it's it's almost made it mundane and i know we're talking about a mundane place that you're not supposed to be that's unsettlingly creepy because there's nobody else there and it's not mundane anymore because it gives you that, cre that creepy feeling that you're not supposed to be there. But now it's got a basement mm -hmm. and now it's got a freaking cafeteria and now it's got something else. So is that a situation where in your opinion, it adds to the original or does it actually take something away within that context? We're going we're gonna to get into that very issue shortly. The biggest difference, however, between the back rooms and your basic urban legend of lore of the 70s is the canon involved. Historically, an urban legend could have multiple versions and details that people were just cool with and would compare notes whenever they had an account that varied from the one they were being told. Like someone be like, oh, you heard he had a machete? Oh, I always heard it was an axe. Social media doesn't work like that. For as much collaboration as you hope there'd be, there's just as much division and exclusion as you would expect. 
With every new contributor and additional bit of background information, this divide began to form between these purists who are devoted to the original office space looking level and the original story. And then you had those who were attempting to push the backrooms world in various directions with posts being made to Twiddle and Tic Tac and TubeTown and Wikis and all that stuff. At the end of the day, you got to love a good fandom, right? I mean, wouldn't it be crazy if we had one of those? I mean, ugh, the fandom. People would send in stories and anecdotes for us and create all sorts of stories about us. Oh. I know. Badness. I fought the lower at gmail.com. IFTL pod on Twitter. Go on. So now that we know what the backrooms are, let's take a look at what they are. Yeah, yeah, you heard me. The introduction for the majority of people to the backrooms was a YouTube video posted by a guy named Kane Pixels. He's this 16-year-old kid named Kane Parsons who lives in Northern California. Back in 2022, for, for the record, the video itself was meant to have been posted back in the mid-90s. This nine-minute video that has currently 51 million views and counting. Holy shit. It starts with a short film being shot by some kids in sort of a warehouse parking lot kind of ideas. There's like sea cans and containers and stuff. Yeah. The person holding the camera unexpectedly falls through the ground, or no clips as the kids would say, and finds he lands on this beige carpet in the middle of this endless maze of identical hallways. For the next seven to eight minutes, it's mainly this camera person wandering these halls, calling for help before being spotted and chased by some type of monstrous stick man or like a, like a doodle come to life. Our cameraman is chased and eventually the beast catches up to him and shoves him into an opening in the floor. And this opening opens into a free fall thousands of feet above the ground. Again, being first person, you see the ground getting closer and closer and closer, and the camera lands in a park, thin, the end. Now, it is a found footage, it's presented as found footage. It's, if you look at it, chrono <laughs> if you look at it chronically, God chronologically? Damn it. Yes. Chronologically on the YouTube playlist, it's number three in a series of 16 videos total. Most of them aren't about the found footage at all, but detail the experiences of a scientific team with a fictional corporation called Async, and they are exploring the back rooms after a doorway or a threshold was opened to it through an experimental, and this is directly from the videos, low proximity magnetic distortion system. Now, I made an effort to watch the series all the way through, but I will be absolutely honest with you, after about episode 12, I tapped out. I mean, full, full credit for the degree of realism and skill that it took this kid to make these, but there's only so much I can take of just straight first-person POV, like yeah. handycam waving around, up, down, all over the place. Now, Did it come off as like a like first-person shooter, but without anything to shoot at? A little bit, because the nature of the back rooms where the cameraman was, a big part of its threat is this idea of it being endless. So a lot of what you get is the camera panning left, right, up, and down to just see more and more and of more the exact of same. Yeah. Okay, so I got you. It's effective, but again, you, you can only take so much. As of February 6th, 2023, 
a film production company called A24 announced that they are working on a film adaptation of The Backrooms based on Parsons' video. Yeah, with, good for him. With Parsons directing. Really? Yes. Oh, damn. What will be interesting to see is what a bigger budget and a bigger team and more people can do for something that thrives on this low-budget DIY style. Even the videos when you watch them, because they're meant to take place in the 90s, they all have that that VHS look, you know, with like the tracking lines yeah. and stuff the distortion. There was a lot of videos recently that have all kind of had that as this this larger trend with online horror that I've heard the term analog horror throw around to, yep. to describe this yep. thing. Now, as a fun aside, just for comparison's sake, back in 2018, uh, we saw the major theatrical debut of another uh, slender online urban legend that is currently sitting at an eight and 16% on Rotten Tomatoes. <laughs> but that's another that's a tale for another time. I can't help but feel like there's a movement here talking about this analog horror stuff. It's almost like like kids today want to treat the 90s the way we treated the 70s. In being this time when mysterious things happened before they were born. Yeah. Which... Uh, anyway, I don't want to talk too much about that. Uh, it's like uh, it's like I had mentioned in uh, one of the previous episodes. I think it was Goaty Folk. Somebody creates an urban legend that takes place far enough back that it's not ancient, but it's far enough in the past to have been plausible with what they're talking about and, and the generalities that they make. It's not like, oh, well, this urban legend started in the 1920s, but I was born in 2006. I know absolutely nothing about the 1920s. Yeah. But I can hear my older siblings talk about the 90s. I, I can still see TV shows from the 90s, so I can get that idea mm-hmm. and I can use that image, that aesthetic to plant the story in uh, without it seeming too old-fashioned, I yeah, guess. Yeah, and it's... You know, this all happened to somebody, and it happened so long ago, they recorded it on, like, a VHS camera. Yeah. Which is why you probably won't be able to find it. I'm the only source for it. (laughs) Exactly. And nobody has a VHS player anymore, so how the hell are you going to watch it even if you did? So this brings us up to present day. Before I get into my conclusion on all this, and the reason this has all piqued my interest, what the fuck? And we're walking faster now. Rico Montfrère, tell me, based on what we've been talking about in here, did the lore win? This is very, very interesting. I like the idea about modern urban legends for the internet age. I think this works really well on two levels. Uh, It's modern. It's a modern take. I really like this as an urban legend. I want to say the lore wins on this one. And for a couple of reasons, it's got a really good modern aesthetic to it. The idea of no clipping works on more than one level. Like you said, no clipping is a term that kids use for video games. And it means going from going into a place where you can't or you're not supposed to go. And the idea that you could do that with the world is really cool. It speaks to its audience. It uses the language its audience is going to understand because the audience is probably going to understand what no clipping is without an explanation, right? People who are finding this are going to get it, Yeah. right? And it's a cautionary tale. Don't go to places you're not supposed to go because you might get stuck there. You got to be careful when you're out alone. Um, You don't want to accidentally get trapped somewhere 
even by accident. But if you were hanging out at an industrial mall that was that was closed, you probably shouldn't have been there anyway. It also works on the level of the idea that's been posed recently, and I keep on seeing on clickbait articles about is our universe just a big simulation? One complements kind of the other. And even if it's possible that his initial intention wasn't maybe to run it in parallel because of when it came out. Yeah. I think that, that yeah, way. it's kind of an after the fact thing, but it works. It it un, it it accidentally, unintentionally flows really well from one to the other. The idea that it was supposed to take place in the 90s, it was found footage from the 90s is kind of neat, but I don't necessarily think it was necessary. I think it works really well on those two levels, even coincidentally. I'd like to say that this kind of kind of wins. Hmm. I like this modern urban legend do you think the potential for a film studio to get involved with this do you think that helps it or hurts it it i mean it's going to help in one way because this dude's going to get some money for his creation and if he created something that millions of people have watched already hopefully for him and the people who are investing in it uh it's going to get more and more millions of followers. They're going to make some money. He's going to be able to basically get paid for this cool idea that he came up with. I think on one hand, it works on a personal level for that guy. On the other hand, they are going to have to make it a lot more exciting than walking down some halls, looking looking left, looking right, looking up, looking down. They're going to have to put action in there. They're going to have to put monsters in there. Now, I know you mentioned that there was a monster in there, a doodle thing or a stick thing. That's kind of neat, but now you're going to have to build a reason for those things to be in there. You're going to have to have people fighting them. They're probably going to end up putting them on screen far too much. And while it's something that should be in the background to be creepy, it's probably going to get overexposed about five minutes after you see it. It's not going to be intimidating or scary any longer. I can't say for certain because I didn't watch all 16 episodes or however they are. But I don't know if a later episode addresses the monsters that are encountered and how they are dealt with or if they are dealt with. Yeah. Um, but you got to do something for the movie because yes. you have to have an endgame. Yep. I mean, unless you're Quentin Tarantino, your story's got to have a beginning, a middle, and an end. It's got to have a conclusion to the story, <laughs> which means it's going to have to address the things that are in there. Mm-hmm. Quentin Tarantino is the only person who could get away with not necessarily having a beginning, middle, or end in that sequence. True, true. The thing for me, and I have to start with this disclaimer, is that this all kind of has me a little conflicted. And I mentioned this before about, you know, this this conflict with how this fits as an urban legend based on what we talked about earlier. The tales of yore that we grew up with and the ones that have been around for decades, you know, before you and I were even born, there was little to no evidence as to where it started. No one knows who it happened to first because the names always changed. Oh, yeah. It was always somebody told me that somebody told them that they heard it from somebody else because their brother had heard it from somewhere. Yep. You, it was always that you had a basic story with these subtly interchangeable details that everyone who heard it just took it as word of mouth to be true at face value. And then they would just pass it on to somebody else and possibly add their own flourishes and it would just continue. The back rooms, on the other hand, has a very concrete origin. You have a creation date, you have a creator, everyone knows it's a work of fiction. And you still have people that are adding little details, adding their own stories, 
you know, inserting themselves into this saying, oh yeah, I, I accidentally found myself in the, in the back rooms last week. Oh, I was, you know, here, follow my Twitter account. I'll tell you all about it. You, you have the urban legend community and you have something like a community for the back rooms and you have this community full of fans that have varying levels of interest in contributing to something larger than, than themselves. If I have to say definitively, if the lore wins in this case, yes and no. Okay, yes, but just barely. And, and here's why. You have this 16-year-old self-made short videos. The subject matter resonates with so many people that it generates this avalanche of parallel fan films, stories, digital art, video games, role-playing games. You know, regardless of true or false, as a story, it spread like wildfire and represented what had up until that point just been this unsettling atmosphere that a lot of people had encountered, but no one could quite put their finger on. That sort of checks off the box of that previously talked about societal anxiety around the threat of ending up in one of these places when you least expect it. As impressive as the involvement now of this Hollywood machinery seems to be, it also has a habit of killing these types of stories. If the movie becomes all people talk about, it's no secret that there are a laundry list of other horror properties, Slender Man, Ouija boards, you know, other urban legends that if they're given a PG-13 film treatment, which I would imagine would be the best way to get the demographic that's involved with this story into the theater to see it. All their money because they have the disposable income. You can't take the back rooms and make a hard R film out of it. I get that. But making it this sort of watered down, stereotypical, teeny bopper creep movie with lots of jump scares. It's, I don't know, I find, like, I'm worried for it. The back rooms as a standalone found footage experience is awesome. Anyone who back in the day saw the Blair Witch can attest to the fact that there's a very real anxiety that you can exploit with found footage because it just appears out of nowhere in social media, it removes that protective blanket from the protagonist because the protagonist doesn't have to survive. It's the camera that's the hero. And as long as the camera survives, that means everybody's fair game. Where it falls down on this, from the urban legend standpoint, is that when you pull back and start to get into this larger lore that surrounds the backroom environment, you know, you still have people repeating and reiterating you know, what they've heard elsewhere online, but then it, it ceases to be, it, you're not really pushing this as a true event anymore. And, it, and it's, it, it's very seldom something that happened to someone they know. And it's just more of this idea of like, you know, hey, that's really cool, but I think it'd be cooler if this happened or if that happened. Man, this is going to spawn a, a whole film universe. The They're B going to the do- BCU? Yep. They are going to then do a prequel. Um, they're going to then do a spinoff of the dude from the SWAT team who goes in. Mm -hmm. They're then going to have to explain where the camera was made and why. I don't know. It's it's going to be stupid. They're going to put way too much into it. But I wanted to mention when uh, you were talking about old urban legends, about how they were passed along versus this one having a concrete explanation. 
you're right. That's one of the things that's going to be a detriment to it because everybody knows where it came from. Everybody can track this to where it started. Whereas with you and me in the playground, when we were hearing about this stuff, what what could we do? We could yep. talk to an older brother or sister or a parent or something, and they probably know it, but mm-hmm. they don't know where it started either. Nope. And it gives that air of mysteriousness of authenticity. Well, my dad knows about that. My mom knows about this. My older brother knows about this too. So it must be true. And nobody can pinpoint what the start was. So I think you're, you're very right on that point that a concrete beginning to it really kind of hampers it in the winning category for does the lower win or lose. And now I'm kind of possibly thinking about changing my answer. (laughs) Maybe the lower doesn't win on this one. It's a neat story. It's a cool story. But the fact that as an urban legend, it really can't follow that one rule about it being passed along from one person to the other without being able to track its origin because you really can. So what it comes down to for me, is this a modern, not really a modern day internet urban legend as you know, it, as it does connect people to a common feeling but it lacks that hazy, untraceable origin that makes it so mysterious. Yeah, I had a pretty clear idea of how this was gonna go, how this was all gonna play out in my head when it started. But I gotta tell you, man, now I'm as turned around in my head as we are in in here, wherever that is. I miss the food court. Remember all the smells? I, they didn't smell like this musty ass carpet. I could go for some Mrs. Vanellis. Oh, Mrs. Vanellis, maybe a. Crunch wrap from Taco Bell with the Doritos flavored crunchy crunch. Wash that down with an orange Julius. Oh, did, is orange Julius even a thing anymore? I don't know. Was there an orange Julius back there and I missed it? There might have been. <gasps> Time warp. <laughs> oh, maybe we really aren't supposed to be here. No. I mean, I'd, I'd be worried about security catching us, but there doesn't seem to be any security around here at all. Uh, so thinking about this, the urban legend starts on the internet. You've got a guy who does a found footage film Mm -hmm. and it gets really popular. Now you've got a 24 coming in. How is that going to work with people adding to the lore on the internet? Because now a major studio is going to own this property. Now, you can do fan fiction, you can do all those kind of things to existing properties and stuff as long as you're not making any uh, any money off of it. So I can create a Friday the 13th film, but I can make zero profit on it. Mm-hmm. Distribution, nobody can pay me for this. I can create a fan fiction Halloween film, but as soon as I make a penny on that and I keep that for myself, mm-hmm. I can get sued because mm-hmm. now I'm infringing on intellectual property that's owned by somebody else. Mm-hmm. How is that going to work with this story? Now, I understand nobody on the internet is probably making any money on this, but you're also going to have people who, like you mentioned, were purists who yeah. thought, oh, okay, you know, the, the, the original story is the original story, and then you've got these other people who are adding to it. You're always going to have people like that with any story. Well, but, think about uh, Disney and all the extended uh, Star Wars novelizations and everything where they were like, yeah. nope, it's only the nine movies and whatever we produce, whatever we do. Whatever we say yes. is canon. Yes. To go beyond that, you've now 
got internet forums mm -hmm. chock full of people who are creating what they call their own headcanon. Well, this is what happened in the movies, and this is what the director says happened, and this is what the writer says happened, and they're in agreement. But my own headcanon mm -hmm. is this. Yeah. Now – Instead of people trying to add to it in a good-natured way and having some arguments here and there, you're going to have people who are being hard-cut assholes to each other if they're not already doing it. Yep. Because now this is put into a major entertainment system, mm -hmm. right? So you're going to have people who are arguing harder about this than ever before online, people who are being even more strict about what you can and can't say about it, and yep. are you, you're not a real fan because you don't blah, 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 and, and only real fans understand this, and yep. I've seen it so many times because I love horror movies, and fandom are assholes yep. when you get right down to it. People yep. who are strict fans, they're fanatics about something, they are assholes they, a lot of the time. There's they, a lot of gatekeeping with that stuff, and that's going to come into this now. Because they, they, the problem too is you get a lot of people who they get invested in something to the point where they claim ownership of yes. it. Yes. They feel like they have to protect it, they have to defend it from other people who are yep. just really trying to do the same thing those people are. Yep. They're just but, trying to do it in their own way. Yep. And they took something a little different from something that they saw on screen or interpreted it in a different way. And now they're being told, no, you're wrong. Yeah, I've seen a lot of I've seen a lot of that on a lot of forums, especially to do with horror movies and things that I love. And yeah, the gatekeeping on this, I think, is going to be pretty bad because now you've got all these older sources before the movie was made and people are going to try to take that as canon and what other people said as canon you're going to have people calling them stupid pieces of garbage and uneducated because they don't understand that this one person wrote it he's yeah. the director now and blah 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 and only he gets to say this and only he gets to say that and, and, the, and the people who are going to be adamant that you know this kid I guess he's not a kid anymore. Well, I mean, this this only came out last year, so he's only, he's only he's still going to be seventeen or eighteen years old now. Oh yeah. And you're gonna and, you know and like with anything. You'll oh have, yeah, it was twenty twenty two. Yep. And Damn. Like, congrats with, on you, kid. And with anything, you have the people who were the day oneers that were like, oh, you know, you this doesn't mean as much as to you as it does to me. Wesley um, Snipes, the day walker, is going to be right there with him. Are you all, ready all, for this? You're not ready for this. <laughs> This, with you being a little more plugged in with the Hollywood thing, you had this guy, this Robert Pattinson, was set to write the screenplay, while James Wan, Michael Clear from I, from Atomic Monster, Sean Levy, Dan Cohen, and Dan Levine of Twenty One Laps are set to produce. I recognize the name James Wan. I recognize that one. I recognize Dan Cohen and Sean Levy, but I don't know where I know that name from. Dan Cohen, I think, is a producer or a writer-producer. Wasn't he one of the Cohen brothers? Maybe, or is he just I, a third I, Cohen that's unrelated? Again, I, I don't know if these names provide any kind of indication as to what type of film this could be. James Wan, he's, he's, he, that's the whole Conjuring Universe guy, yeah. right? Yeah. But he directed the first movie. Mm -hmm. I don't know what he had to do aside with producing from the other ones. A producer is somebody who kind of gets the money together from what I understand and helps get things moving and keeps them moving. The director is the one who's on set. It's his vision that he's trying to get everybody to help interpret and put on film. Producers do have a certain amount of power, mm -hmm. but 
a producer, there's been instances where producers can ruin a film mm -hmm. because they take too much of a hands-on approach. And then there's times when a producer sits back and just lets the director do what the director is going to do, yeah. right? Um, James Wan has made some good movies, but he's also been attached to some stuff that hasn't been so great as a producer. So really, I mean, they're going to put his name on the poster. Yeah. From the mind that brought you The Conjuring, <laughs> James Wan, yep. producer of blah, 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 brings you, maybe not say it exactly that way, but very highly associate James Wan's name with it. Yep. And then people are going to think, oh my God, this is going to be great because James Wan's doing it. He's not really doing it. No. Other people are doing it. He's helping getting the money to get the money together in order to get this thing moving. And maybe he'll take a hand in it, but probably not very much of one. Yeah. And all the, and all the people who've been to see the Conjuring movies, the Annabelle movies, the Nun movies, like they're going to see his name attached to this project and they're going to be, they'll all be in. Oh yeah. It's going to do really well. On opening night, the opening weekend, it'll make some money. And then like most horror movies, 70% drop off on the second weekend. Mm -hmm. But if they do it cheap enough, it's going to make its money. Maybe it turns into the next Saw franchise, <laughs> but probably not. Although I mean, they're still making Saw and, movies. And that's the thing, like we're saying too, is that as great as the found footage movie as a standalone thing is works so well, if this backroom's world the larger it gets, all that does is it invites people to try and make other movies like with the Conjuring series where you have various characters, various villains, various things kind of happening either in sequence or in parallel. It expands it to the point that there is no more mystery left. No. To it. Exactly. And yeah, too too many cooks spoil the broth, too many hands do something bad. And that's and that's part of where I guess as long as the backrooms remains online and in social media, everyone can contribute what they want to it. They can take it in whatever directions they want to it because it's all of these people that are adding independently to one another, but alongside each other. You know, when you have all these different people trying to put their own stamp on something, their own flourish on something, they're not doing it in the hopes that someone else takes what they have done and continues. It's sort of, it's almost like they want to add what they want to add and then whatever anyone else does is fine. Like, they don't, you know, there's not necessarily a... It's like everyone is adding to this at the same time, but they're not adding it to the same pop. Yeah. Yeah. It's like everyone's, do, everyone's doing this for their own ego, for their own satisfaction. It's like what they want to see added, what they want to see focused on, as opposed to saying, hey, I really like what someone else wrote, you know, but what if that person added this, this and this and, you know, expands on something someone else had done. And then at some point, the guy who created it he ends up losing control of it yeah and it grows exponentially or out of his hands and what does uh what does he have to say about it what does he think about it anymore the same people who get very possessive and protective of a certain property from other people trying to add to it they can turn just as easily on the person that created it in the first place yeah oh they sold out they sold out to hollywood they they don't they don't care about it like we do i totally take that hollywood money <laughs> I made a I made a nine minute found footage film 
about it, some empty office space and the Hollywood machine wants to give me money. Give me that money, bruh. Using a couple of programs in Adobe, it took him about a month to do. Well, I mean, we can we can watch it and we can see because I have not seen this. Yeah. Which of these brands have you heard of? I have heard of... Shut up! <laughs> That's some weak-ass shit, bro. Oh, listen to that VHS noise that they put right at the beginning, eh? Yep. Rolling. All right, and action. It looks like they're trying to film something, and then the guy holding the camera... I think that's actually the artist there. And then you see the guy, he backs up, and then he just, like, falls through the floor. And then, boom, he's... He lands in the in the back rooms. Oh, damn. Dude, I'm not going to lie. I thought this was going to start off as a skateboarding video. <laughs> oh, they even introduce it as a short film. Yep. Okay. Hello? Absolutely, from the beginning, Hello? taking any mystery away from it. Hey, guys. But I, At least that way he can always claim ownership of it. Yep. I'm assuming that this guy, at this point, didn't want it to become an urban legend. Or try to create an urban legend. He just wanted to make a film and put it out on YouTube. And then he introduced it as a film by him. Yep. Which completely takes away from the idea of it being an urban legend. Which, I mean, on a different level, I think that's good. Also, I like the fact that that little thing is kind of following him. And it's just out of screen. It's It's got some, it's got some Jaws vibes where, you know, you're not showing the monster right away kind of thing, right? Yeah. Nifty with the camera sounds, and I, and like I say, I think this is all just completely fabricated in Adobe. This is not none of this is live action. This is all computer animated. That's cool. Yeah, that's got some talent. And he hid it. He hid any flaws with something looking too phony and computer graphicy by doing it camcorder style VHS, like filmed on VHS. Like, like there's style. certain shots there that look very artificial, like with the light yes. through those doors. Yeah, I agree with that, but he's also got the tracking across there. Yep. But it's good because the walls are also slightly out of focus. Yeah. Because you're going to get that with uh, with those old VHS cameras too. Me? Hello? This arrow pointing mm-hmm. this way is kind of neat because it shows that other people have been there too. I yep. like that he's finding this. It's pretty cool and again keeping the keeping the monster like you know not keeping it in full like not showing it minimal I think I think when this gets to a Hollywood level they're going to ruin that yeah and again that's that's the fear we're talking about about you know as, as well and good as it, as it is for this to hit a point where it could be a movie, yeah. depending on the type of movie they turn it into, it's going to do a lot to... Oh, he jumps down into it, and then he lands on another floor? Now, I, I thought this part was really kind of cool because when you look at this staircase, like... Like that thick wooden railing. Yeah. Like everything, like even the furnishings, the environment looks very, there's like a retro feel to even just everything you see here. Yeah. It looks like somebody's 1970s unfinished, unfurnished basement. Yeah. When like rec rooms were starting to get, uh, were starting to get big, except that's a big ass rec room. <laughs> and like just the carpeted stairs. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting that he did a different environment, so it wasn't just other people adding different environments. 
that looks very video gamey. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Like I say, every every once in a while, there's just there's just brief flashes of things that just look very artificial. But I mean, yeah. Yeah. As long as he keeps walking and keeps the camera moving, you can't really. You know, yeah. There's not enough to focus on to see it all, and then he and then with with the VHS quality is can help hide stuff, right? Even this looks... The filing cabinets look really cartoony. Yeah. Oh, he found a door. All of these spaces, the stairwells, things like that, they're all... They all have a very familiar look to them. Like, yep. like you know, hotels and whatever. <laughs> like, kind of reinforcing this idea of it not... You can't escape it, right? Like, it yeah. just loops back on itself. Well, he jumped down a hole. He went back up some stairs, one level. Where do you think he was going to end up? <laughs> Maybe that squiggly monster thing just wants to play. Maybe it wants a friend. Well, it is, maybe it's sad just to just like have it. It it introduces it, but like a sit down coffee chat. Well, it's yeah. like, hello, creature. How are you? Well, you know, I was just sitting there and I was really bored. And, you know, <laughs> then I heard somebody. They're like, help me. And I'm like, maybe I should help them. And they just <laughs> ran screaming. I was so upset. Yeah. See, when you see it, it, it doesn't look good. No. Yeah, and then that's it. Ah, that was not a bad little nine-minute movie. Yep. Other than the title card at the beginning, you don't have any indication of who's holding the camera. They're completely anonymous. You don't see them. Yeah. You don't know who they are. Their name's never mentioned. It's just the camera. The person dies in the free fall, but the camera lasts, so it's like... You like, like from that point, you kind of have the whole anonymous sort of like you don't really know. Yeah, it was just somebody in the 90s that was recording a film and then disappeared from their friends and then died. Yeah, that's it. But yeah, there was the one episode I remember watching that was farther along in the series. And this researcher is exploring this area that's sort of like a suburban street outside the back rooms. And you can hear someone saying, you know, somebody help us. Somebody help us. Is there anyone there? And he's following this voice. Yeah. The closer he gets to the source of the voice, the voice starts getting louder and louder and louder until it distorts into that thing's roar. Oh. So it, it was like a weird kind of extra little thing, like maybe in a different in a different way that monster at some point in a different video was using was mimicking human speech to sort of lure people to it. Like the goat man and his bridge. Yep. Oh or my like the god. Whole, the whole Popelick. thing. Popelick, skinwalkers back rooms squiggly fella I am sure that they're going to cut back and forth between the back rooms to his friends looking for him and yep. there's going to be some drama with you know his family there's going to be a milk carton with a <laughs> with a missing uh, face picture on it like they used to do it's probably going to be a love interest maybe like his best friend has a crush on his sister and then they get married in the future and at the end, during their wedding, they say their vows and they're like, now let's go get them back. And they like whip out guns and like cock them. She's in her wedding dress and he's in his suit. And they have like like rope tied around their waists and they found a entrance to it and they jump through ready to go. And they find him and he's like got this big giant gray beard. And it, it, it's all uh, it's like Jumanji style where he like he gets yeeted through a doorway yes. back into the real world and he's like it's 30 years later and he's Robin Williams and yep. except he can't be Robin Williams now that's true rip yeah when I was watching the, the other channel where the guy talked about it 
Yep. Um, they saw, they had clips of these ones as well. And I think yep. there was a clip with like, was there like a SWAT team or something? And they kept on falling down different areas. Well, and there was footage from the tests they ran of whatever machinery opened the door to this place. Okay. Then it became one of the videos was sort of like sort of a mock corporate informational film about the project that was built around exploring these things like K- KV31 or whatever I think was the name of the project. And it was like, oh, you know, during your during your time on this project, you'll hear it referred to by the following names, the back rooms, the doorway, the blah, blah, blah. It, it had this sort of whole very corporate kind of lingo to it, right? Like where it'd be something that the company that either built the machine that opened the door to this place and is the same company that's sending these scientists through yes. to study it, right? Yeah, just these. This these. is going to be a this is going to be the project that you're attached to. Yeah. These are the things that you might find. One guy goes thinking he hears other people in the back rooms and it turns out to be, and again, it's a thing where I don't think you ever see what's making the noise. It's just this guy running. And the whole time he's in, he's in radio contact with the rest of his team and they're going to send a rescue line down to where he is. But of course, this thing's chasing him. So he keeps kind of panning between the opening that he's got to get through and then wherever he came from to see if yeah. anything's chasing him yet. So, like, you know, it does build up some tension there. Again, because it's the person holding the camera, you're never sure whether or not the person is going to survive. Yeah. Because in these cases, it's only, it's only ever the camera that has to be found. That's yep. it, right? So, you know, I think from a horror movie perspective, I like that it removes that protective blanket so that you're never like, well, their name's in the credits, so they're going to live. Yeah. Like you don't. And I was, again, going back to the Blair Witch, there was none of that. Like, everybody was expendable. Yeah. Well, the Blair Witch, when you mentioned it earlier, had an advantage Mm -hmm. on what this upcoming movie is going to have. The Blair Witch had a bunch of marketing behind it that made you think it was true. Before I went to see the Blair Witch, I did a deep dive on this, Mm -hmm. right? And they had a website with yes. clips from the movies, creepy, yep. creepy stuff. If you got in the right mindset, you yep. could totally buy it. Newspaper articles, fake clippings, all of this stuff. And what I love too is they even they even provided a whole backstory in terms of of like the history of Burkittsville, which I don't even think is a real place. No, it's not. I don't but, think either. But if you have like this city of Burkittsville that has this massive like Puritan community yeah. from like hundreds of years ago. And then the whole idea of there being this woman that was accused of things, and then she was found here, and then they caught her, and they killed her there. You're taking, you're making, you're giving a fictional place, a fictional history, but you're presenting it in a way with like the old timey woodcuts that yeah. if you do, if you didn't know any better, you know, knowing knowing what life was like in the U.S. at that time, knowing what kind of people lived then, yeah, well, you'd have no reason to suspect yeah. that this was fake. Like it was just, yeah, like. The witch trials and everything else going on, the idea of like someone being persecuted who was living in the woods, being found and killed in a very gruesome manner. It all kind of like you're like, yeah, okay, I could I could yeah. I could see that. And they did a great job with that. They mm-hmm. did a great job. Now, actually, Burkittsville might be real, but they did a fictionalized version of it because they were talking some of the extras were actual townsfolk and they okay. said, Have you heard of the Blair Witch? And yeah. they kind of made up a story on the spot. Yeah. And they gave them a little bit of direction, talk about this, talk about this, but they kind of gave them a little bit of freedom with what to say, mm-hmm. which was cool because then it kind of sounds urban legendary yeah. too, right? Because people's stories aren't 
always exactly the exactly, same. Exactly, yeah. My thing was I did too far of a deep dive. Mm. And when this film was going around to the, uh, before Paramount, was it Paramount that bought it? Before the major studio bought it, mm-hmm. the movie took less than like $50,000 to make and they made like $30 million on it or something yeah. like that. And it was huge. It was disgusting the amount of money that it made. This was just a little film that was being sent around to film festivals. And there was a film, there was an article from a local paper mm-hmm. from one of the film festivals. And the person had interviewed, the writer had interviewed the director, uh, the two directors, the writer okay. and the director of this. They were talking about the film in a very casual way to the interviewer and they oh, were kind of laughing about it. Yeah. And the interviewer was confused and said, well, this is a horrible thing that happened. Like, how could you be so casual about it? Yeah. And they said, we just, we, we just wrote this film. Yeah. None of this happened. And they explained it in this little article, yeah. but I had gone so deep into it. <laughs> I accidentally found out that it wasn't real. And then when I went to see the movie with you and our friends, I went in knowing it wasn't real. And mm. I still liked the Blair Witch. I understand that there were not a lot of people who liked the Blair Witch or yeah. there were a lot of people who didn't, but it made a lot of money. So it was successful. But there are also a lot of people who did like the Blair Witch. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that came from the thought that maybe this was real. And you have to realize that even going into this movie thinking it's real, mm-hmm. the police are not going to let what essentially comes down to a snuff film get released <laughs> majorly through a studio. It's not yeah. going to happen. But people weren't thinking that mentality. They weren't mm-hmm. in that mindset. You had this neat story. It was a scary story. It was something people could relate to if they've ever been lost anywhere. Yep. It's You could feel for the characters. There was a lot of emotion that people were going through. And it wasn't just, you know, on screen crying and <laughs> melodramatic. It was people arguing because they were frustrated and hungry and scared. And they were attacking each other verbally. Mm-hmm. You could really get into that with the right mindset, but then you go to the website and like you said, all these things that they created, that they invented Mm -hmm. were done very well, especially at the time when the internet was still kind of in its youth Oh yeah, and you were able to find these things on there. The studio, I guess, would have, would have marketed it this way. They created this marketing that was very, very effective and it worked very well. Now, this movie, because of the nature of what's going on, it's a very popular story. Mm -hmm. It's going to lose something because everybody knows it's already a story. And piggybacking off of what you were just saying about the Blair Witch, the Blair Witch was based on the disappearance of three specific people. Yep. But the back rooms, I guess the victim most people will be familiar with, because they were meant to be anonymous for the purpose of the found footage film, as soon as the film company gives that faceless camera person a face, a name, an identity, because it wasn't a person that was identified as missing already, if you're just putting a name and a face to a character that people have always assumed could be anybody, yeah, they're probably going to have an issue with that. Yeah. It's not like it was explained that, yeah, this person in this year was holding a camera with his friends and then disappeared and was found sometime later dead in a park. Because then you can say, oh, oh, poor so-and-so. Oh, did you hear about so-and-so? Like this person, this person, this person. But if you have a story where that person is never identified – but you have to give that person a name. You can't have this movie be about just this nameless yep. whatever. You're going to have people like, no, it, sh- it shouldn't have been that person. That person was too old. That person, sh- it should have been a guy. It was a female. 
like you're going to have people who, because in their head canon, they've associated that nameless, faceless camera holder with a specific image in their head. Yep. So I have, a, I have a feeling there's going to be people who are going to have a problem with whoever they cast in the role. There's always going to be people who have a problem with somebody who gets cast in something, right? Yeah. I mean, sometimes the internet just wants to bitch. Yep. That's what it's there for. Somebody just wants to complain and social media gives everybody an outlet to do it in a very loud voice on certain platforms seem to be inundated with that. So it probably wouldn't survive if people just shut up and stopped whining and go out of business. In a comparative sense, <laughs> I'm almost wondering if when they marketed the Blair Witch originally as being the found footage of the final days of these three Of students. a true event. Yeah. yeah. Was that almost meant to be a fictionalized version of what we're seeing now with the backrooms where you take a work of art, literally and figuratively, they're making a movie of. The Blair Witch almost feels like when that was around, it was like they were trying to say, oh, well, there's already an urban legend that existed about, these pe- about this story. Now we're just putting it in the movies. There was never really uh, an urban legend about the witch in the no. woods or anything like that. But they made it seem in the movie like they, yes, this had all pre-existed, right? Yes. They, they, they completely made up the whole thing. Mm-hmm. But then the movie was where the idea of the witch came from. The cast of Blair Witch was told to stay out of sight yep. during the marketing for this movie. And I remember hearing stories about how they did a very similar thing with the cast of Cannibal Holocaust. But that went all kinds of south because the director and the producers were actually charged with murder until they presented the people in the film saying, no, look, they're still alive. They're right here. Like you were saying about this idea of a snuff film being released in a major motion picture setting. Yeah. And I think a lot of people assumed when Cannibal Holocaust came out that that's exactly what had happened. They had to be brought before court to have proof that they were alive and this was just a movie. The 70s and the limited access to information, it just gave everything the ability to just be so much scarier than now. Yep. Because you couldn't just go online and fact check all this stuff. Yeah. You, you were forced to take people's word for it yep. because that's all you had. I mean, hey, man, the urban legend about the individual with some sort of mental issue mm-hmm. who had a hook for a hand and escaped the care facility that he was in and then ends up attacking a car where two people are on lover's lane and then they find <laughs> just the hook from his hand got caught in the door the next morning. Yeah. Was that real? Was that not real? A lot of people knew it wasn't real, but a lot of people weren't sure because like you said, you couldn't go on the internet and you couldn't look this up to see that it was fake or try to find the newspaper article where it first appeared. Mm-hmm. Like you can now, or the version that I heard about instead of a hook for a hand, the guy had a giant moldy Dorito. <laughs> I mean, that was a regional thing where, where, I was a, where I was a kid. The humans can lick hands too. Who could look online and find that? I mean, now you can look online and you can, you can uh, track down probably what the source is of the serial killers who apparently keep getting caught on Tinder because they are going to go into 
their date that they dropped off and sneak back into their house after the date and then lay out their knives. But the person that they're intending to kill wakes up and sees them and calls the police on the down low. And then the police come and arrest them. I've heard three different versions of that story, but I know somebody who is adamant that that story is absolutely true. And I know that there have been people who met on Tinder and I know that people have been in relationships from Tinder where one partner murders the other, but it was not this story, Mm -hmm. but people believe, absolutely believe that this is true. And they'll tell you, oh no, I heard it from a friend that I trust because her brother's sister knew somebody (laughs) in college that, you know, said it happened to their friend. Yeah. And that's absolute definitive proof in this person's mind yeah, yeah they don't they don't need to check anything it's just no. nope that's what they told me and i and i know who they are so well well they did because three different people that they're unconnected to know this story because that's how it got to them so it has to be true the idea of someone almost but not quite getting killed by a serial killer clearly if this person is a serial killer they've killed before but the story doesn't mention how many people this person has killed to, to earn serial killer status all they're focused on is the one person who almost got killed but got away. On the one hand, it sort of takes some of the threat, I think, out because clearly this serial killer is incompetent enough to get caught. Oh, they're bad at their job. Yes. It also retcons the flaw that happens with most of these stories where if the serial killer kills everybody, well, then who's left to tell the tale yeah left you have to, to have a survivor yes you, and as much as it hurts the threat level of the villain in the story it's a necessity that the villain also has to kind of suck at his job or else yeah. you don't have someone who can say oh this is you know this is what happened to me this is how i almost died because of x y yeah. and z um, now with this circling back on the back rooms the camera, like you mentioned, this that's the thing that survives. Yes. The person doesn't have to survive, well, but the camera does, right? Yep. So that's what's kind of cool about the original version of this. The person doesn't survive, mm-hmm. but we do know what they went through even though they aren't here to tell us. That's yep. kind of cool. And that's, that's another reference to the digital age, right? Everything yep. can be filmed now. And even back in the 90s, you've got it taken place there, but you've got those super portable. Sure, there are about a foot and a half wide and a foot <laughs> tall and – you know, six inches wide and stuff, but you know, you could carry that with you and you could tape if you have it on super long play mode, you can get like (laughs) six hours on that VHS tape, baby. I think it's a good story, but now I'm not so sure if the lore has won. I don't want to say it's just a film by this Kevin guy. It's a film that this Kevin guy made right at the very beginning of the short film. It tells you this is a film by this guy. And it's cool that it ended up being a demo reel for this guy to get a job in Hollywood. That's super cool. Now I'm kind of wondering, does the lore really win for me now? People are talking about it, and I say that every week. Friday the 13th, does the lore win? I love Friday the 13th. Mm-hmm. I love Friday the 13th Part 4, the final chapter, is one of the best movies in the franchise. I'm also not going to say that the lore wins because it's not usually the kind of stories that we talk about being are they uh, urban legends or are there stories that have been passed around. And I know that kind of conflicts with what I said about the... Uh, Berkeley Square Horror because my favorite version is just a straight up piece of fiction but I was a little kid in that story I grew up with that story and I love that story so get off the <laughs> back about that right now bro but this story is I hope it's successful for the guy mm-hmm. I hope it's successful for the studio it was a neat little nine minute film with an interesting idea but maybe the maybe the Lord doesn't so much win for me on this one now 
that we've been talking about it. Thanks for convincing me otherwise. <laughs> what it comes down to is we're sort of in a place where we have to wait and see what, if anything, this film does to, quote unquote, the lore. Because if the strength of the fandom is enough, regardless of what this film does or doesn't do for the original short film, you are going to have people who are very easily to say, well, they made a movie about this, but it wasn't the real story. And then they'll just completely discount it and they'll focus on their interpretation of it because that's what fandoms do. Is it going to be hipsters getting involved saying, I was a fan before it was cool? You know what? I honestly believe if the lore wins, that will be the only reason why. Well, because you'll have a handful of people who refused to let the major motion picture dictate what people thought about the story overall. Ah, I see what you're saying. they were there in the beginning and they knew what it was originally. And then you're going to have hundreds of thousands of people who go to see this film. All they're going to know about it, they might go back and watch the short film afterwards, or they might watch it first to kind of get caught up on what this is about. But if you have a bunch of people who know nothing about Kane Parsons, know nothing about this short film, know nothing about the YouTube history or anything else, or the fandom, and they just go saying, hey, it's a James Wan, he's, you know, it's a James Wan movie. I'm going to go see it because it's James Wan. Yep. Then they're going to be like, hey, yeah, that was kind of cool, whatever. In that sense, yeah, the lore just dies because all it was was just a horror movie that people saw and then the end. Yep. I agree with that. But you'll still have that little nugget of fandom that are just like, yeah, sure, whatever. There, that's that's not the real story. This is I'm writing the real story because mm-hmm. I'm, you know. So, I've kind of walked back on my answer. The Lord doesn't necessarily win for me. Mm-hmm. As much as this is a cool thing, I'm yes. not saying it's bad, but nope. the Lord doesn't necessarily win for me on this. Yep. Does the Lord still win for you? I'm thinking it might not actually. Oh my God, we have talked ourselves out of the Lord winning, which means you and I win. That's true. We have won over the lore. <laughs> I wonder if there's going to be a scene in this movie where the scientist or whoever goes in kind of off frame, see the monster not doing anything and it's T-posing. <laughs> that would be amazing. Until it's activated and then it goes after him and does what it does. But yeah, every once in a while, just the monster is just seen floating down a hall, just T-posing. Even the use of the term T-posing is... You're speaking to the kids. That's right. You're, you're, talk, you're talking the kids' lingo now. I'm down with the youth. That's right. Bruh. AF. TikTok. <laughs> I know what stuff is. That's right. So I guess that's the end. We turned around and we've been walking far longer than we were walking when we came in. And I don't see the food court. So do you have any idea of how the hell we get out here. Okay. Hmm. I had to take that as a no. No. I was trying to think of something witty and I've got nothing. I know. Okay. I'm hungry. I'm hungry. What are we doing? We gotta go. I can't... All I can smell is wet carpet. Yeah, it smells like your socks from a few episodes ago. Yeah, that was... That was unpleasant. Unpleasant for both of us. Although I, I didn't think the mobile command center could float so well. Winnebago? We talked about this. Uh, okay, yeah, it's a mobile command center or whatever. 
our new mobile command center, quote unquote, is much nicer than our old one at least. But it's not going to do us any good if we can't find it because we're lost wherever the hell we are. Let's turn left because we've been walking straight for quite a while and there's nothing down this way. We have been walking straight for quite a while. I imagine walking gay for a bit wouldn't hurt. All right, we'll turn left on the count of three. Ready? One, two, three. Go left. So this looks exactly like before we turned left. <laughs> Let's go right. Let's do a zigzag pattern. Serpentine, serpentine. <laughs> left, we've gone right. I haven't even seen a potted plant. In fact, <gasps> wait, what? Up ahead, you see that door? <gasps> Okay, maybe that's a way out to the parking lot. I don't care where it goes. That's the first door we've seen since we got in here. This time, you you opened the door. This I opened the door last time. I almost got my arm torn off by Natasha Henstridge. Okay, that was not Natasha Henstridge, but yes, it was my Twitter date. Don't always put up their real photo on Tinder, I have found out. Okay, just saying. But you know what? Let's just go through the door. At least if the alarm sounds, security will come to check it out, and then they'll kick us out. We'll be able to get the hell out of here. I will be able to go and get a burger or a hot dog from a street vendor and try not to crap my pants in the mobile command center. Thank you. You're welcome. All right. Ready? On the count of three. One, two, 